0: Today's show is supported by Open Campus, the new school's progressive approach to continuing education. Explore online and on-campus programs designed to satisfy every type of learner with courses in art and design with Parsons, management, media, writing, and more. Open Campus is more than a course. It's a new kind of network. Fall courses begin August 28th. Enroll today at opencampus.newschool.edu.
1: We love the new school and we want to thank them for sponsoring the Bowery Boys podcast. Episode
0: 234 of the Bowery Boys Prohibition and the Queen of the Speakeasies. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys.
1: Hi there, welcome to the Barry Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And thank you for joining us for part two of our series on the Roaring Twenties.
0: Now, some of you may have noticed that one major aspect of life in the 1920s was largely left out of our last show on Mayor Jimmy Walker. We didn't really go too deeply into the subject of prohibition in New
1: York, speakeasies and nightclubs. Because this will be a show that is entirely devoted to that underworld industry that adds a little glamour and danger to 1920s New York.
0: Glamorous and dangerous, yes, although many others thought of prohibition as a noble experiment. Uh, today, we're going to tell the story of the 18th Amendment, which forbade the production and transport and selling of alcohol in the United States. And we'll, we'll focus, as always, on what effect that law those laws had on the drinking capital of the
1: United States, New York City. But as we did with our last show, we're going to have a tour guide take us through this particular aspect of New York City in the 1920s. Her name is Texas Guinan, the queen of the speakeasies. Now,
0: Greg, I'm already going to jump in and object here because I would say that she was actually the queen of the nightclubs because speakeasies were technically more just like bars, and Mm -hmm. she had bigger shows and reviews, but perhaps that's a detail that can wait until (laughs) later in the show.
1: Well, let's just say the queen of illegal booze sales in glamorous environments. Okay, we'll tackle this (laughs) later in the show. But anyway, so we're going to tell the story of this movie star turned hostess as she experiences New York City in the 1920s and the different elements of what made Prohibition in New York City such a fascinating story. So we're going to start this show introducing you to our main character and then the camera is going to pull back so that we can present the story of New York City during the Prohibition era.
0: So follow along as we tour the speakeasies with Texas Guy now. Wow. Well, that jazz music really puts me in the mood Mm -hmm. to take a tour uh, of the speakeasies. But as you promised, why don't we start by meeting today's heroine, today's queen, yes, queen of the speakeasies.
1: (laughs) Texas Guinan. Well, yeah, so last episode, we profiled Mayor Jimmy Walker, who was a native New Yorker who was born here. So I thought it seemed right to contrast his experience with a transplant, Who Someone who moved here and then became a New Yorker. Tom, one guess as to what state we'll be starting this show in.
0: I'm not going to mess with it, Greg. We're
1: going straight (laughs) to Texas. Yes. She was born Mary Louise Cecilia Guinan on January 12th, 1884 in Waco, Texas. Mm -hmm. So obviously she took her nickname from her place of birth. And sure beats Mary Louise. Well, especially if you wanted to have a wild and crazy persona. Mary Louise didn't quite say that, but Texas certainly Mm -hmm. did. She often made up stories. When she became famous, she made up a lot of stories about her childhood to fit this kind of exotic, rough-and-tumble narrative. She once claimed to have run off in a Wild West show as a girl, but in fact, she actually stayed in Waco and just went to Catholic school. That doesn't kind of fit the (laughs) narrative. of a Wild (laughs) West show. (laughs) Yes. But she'd always dreamt about having a life on stage, singing and dancing, acting, you know, like so many young women of this Mm -hmm. period. In 1904, at age 20, she married a cartoonist named Johnny Moynihan, and the two of them moved to Chicago. And so this was going to be her life.
0: Johnny Moynihan, the, the cartoon. she married a stripper.
1: <laughs> so to speak, yes. We're all running off with of Johnny Moynihan's to Chicago, right? Until you get bored of that life. And so she did something very bold for a young woman. Two years later, at age 22, she left her husband. She wow. divorced him and moved to New York to become a chorus girl. And what year is this? 1906. An interesting time to be a chorus girl in New York. On the one hand, the Broadway stage has finally arrived to this newly named area called Times Square. There are agencies that are working out of offices here that are developing traveling theatrical and vaudeville shows that would go all over the country. The year that Texas arrived in New York City was the same year of a tragic incident that made one chorus girl a household name. That Corrine, of course, was named Evelyn Nesbitt. And that incident was the murder of Stanford White on the rooftop of Madison Square Garden. And we have an entire episode
0: from two years ago called The Murder of Stanford White, if you'd like to hear that whole shocking
1: tale. But do you remember, Tom, all the kind of gross details behind that, about all the things that Evelyn had to put up with? Well, that was the world that Texas was entering here. But as you'll see, Texas Garnon is a new kind of independent woman. She was sharp-witted, bold, very sassy, and very ambitious. And where did she live in New York? Well, where would a sassy woman live in the late 1900s? Uh, Down in the village? That's right. Greenwich Village. She rented a room for $2 a week at 72 Washington Square South, which is basically where the library, the NYU library is. Okay, so she's
0: living in the village, she's trying to get jobs in reviews and follies and Broadway shows, mm-hmm. did, it, did she make a name for herself?
1: She would get a few roles in reviews of various sorts on Broadway, but I would say her fame really rose when she entered the touring circuit throughout the country. I'd mentioned these different agencies. Right, right. Well, she kind of hopped aboard a lot of traveling shows and hit the vaudeville stage even. It was so fun researching this period of her career, like looking through old newspapers, because her name would just pop up all over the country. For instance, I found a small clipping from 19. 19- in a newspaper from Akron. Akron, Ohio. (laughs) Yes. And this incident might be real, but with Texas, it also might have been planted to create some mystique. Quote, Texas Guinan, an actress, shot herself accidentally in the side during a performance at Gallipoli's. How the revolver came to be loaded is unknown. She will recover. (laughs) Thankfully, <laughs> oh, and how she recovered! Two years later, in a Utah newspaper, was a report of a production of a show called "The Gay Musician." She that was seems like that would be outlawed <laughs> <lot> in Utah. <laughs> well, I would think so. Uh, she was the star of the show, actually, and during a performance, her dress caught on fire, and so like her skirt was on was blazing, and one of the cast members had to actually extinguish the blaze with his dress coat.
0: <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, so she's she's performing all over the country and in, in vaudeville, but what is she actually doing? What's her shtick or her act? Well, you know,
1: in many ways, she modeled herself after performers like Lillian Russell, who was actually a friend. Mm-hmm. And I even see a little bit of Sophie Tucker in there, a, a, that little body vaudeville kind of thing going on. She was a singer, but mostly she was a comedian. Like, she really honed this persona very quickly. And, and you know, we also talked about her in our show on May West on Broadway. Yes.
0: May would model much of her persona after Texas Guinan.
1: Sometimes it seems like they're almost the same person yeah, <laughs> in it, many you ways. You can
0: find some clips on YouTube of Texas Guinan. And when she arrives wearing, you know, a gorgeous gown and, and jewels, she has that same Sort of a hello. Oh, yeah.
1: yeah. Some would say that May ripped off Texas Garnon, but that's none of my business. So in 1917, Texas Garnon goes to Hollywood. The film industry, of course, is just getting started. It's It's been in New York for many, many years, and now it's finally settling mm-hmm. in this little old town of Hollywood. Mm-hmm.
0: In 1917, so these are all silent films, too, and
1: would be for the next 12 years. She would originally be cast in vamp roles. Now, the vamp persona is kind of a precursor to the flapper, the flapper girl identity, meaning that it's a little debauched, a little bit wicked, very loose and independent. A bad girl. A bad girl, most embodied by the actress Theta Barra. So she was kind of Put into that slot during this a period, a seductress, yeah, yeah, very, very seductive, um, which kind of reflected her own personality and who she would become in the 1920s. So, so Texas Gynon out in in Hollywood would then become famous for being this vampy, vampy character. Well, actually, she would veer off from being a vamp, and this is kind of a, maybe a surprising turn, maybe not, given her name. She began making westerns. In fact, many people consider her the first female Western star of the silent screen. In 1919, she made 19 films, most of which were Westerns, with such names as The Boss of the Rancho, The Heart of Texas, Little Miss Deputy, The Wildcat, and The Gun Woman. That was actually probably her biggest hit, was the gun woman. So it was in these films that she develops this this very forceful feminine presence, mm-hmm. sort of a mix of masculine feminine, a little bit of a tomboy, perhaps. She, her character is always played by the rules of men, but she was very dangerous. In describing Guinan from a newspaper in May of 1919, quote, the day of the ingenue, sweet, simple, and bewitching will always be with us, but the day of the woman with brains and strength ...is about to break. And that was in description of Texas Guinan.
0: So by 1919 and her big hit, The Gun Woman, Uh she's a big star.
1: This is not the biggest thing that will happen in her career. It's not primarily what she's known for, of course, because something else happens in 1919. Something that will set her life on a whole different course. And, of course, bring this bold persona, this bold identity of hers into this new realm... Of course, I'm talking about the ratification of the 18th Amendment, which bans the sale of alcohol and, of course, kicks off the Prohibition era.
0: Okay, so we're in Hollywood with Texas in 1919, but let's pull back a little, bring it back to New York history, Greg. Mm -hmm. She's going to get to New York soon. She's she's on her way there, (laughs) trust me. But the 18th Amendment wasn't just, you know, it didn't just happen out of nowhere. There was a lot of work that went into getting it passed. And certainly drumming up support for it in New York City was also a monumental task for its organizers as well. But even to pull back a little bit further in terms of like drinking in the U.S., this had always been a drinking culture, you know, going back hundreds of years. And New York had always been a drinking city. In the 1820s, there was a Connecticut minister named Lyman Beecher who started preaching about the morality of abstinence. And by that time, many Americans were already starting to believe that alcohol caused a lot of domestic issues, you know, family problems, money problems, abuse, that sort of thing. And in the next year, 1826, the American Temperance Society was formed uh, to encourage people to limit their alcohol intake or to abstain from drinking altogether. And that message that was pushed by the American Temperance Society would quickly prove very popular with Christian churches. And many ministers then started to incorporate this, this message of temperance into their services. It would experience a major setback in the 1860s with the Civil War, because suddenly this was a movement that seemed less important than a country at war with itself.
1: And I can imagine a lot of people wanted to drink during the Civil War.
0: And a lot of soldiers. By the 1870s, you know, the temperance movement was gathering strength again, and much of that was due to the work by progressive women who were successfully leading crusades. They called them Crusades Against Saloons. And the most important organization here was the Women's Christian Temperance Union, which was under the leadership of Francis Willard. And this vast organization would also link up
1: with the suffrage movement. These two causes would link linked together for decades and would, of course, both reach resolution in the late 1910s after World War I. So we have a country that's a mixture of dry, which is like no alcohol, and wet, Mm -hmm. which is drinking places, uh, states and moderates, moderates, cities and states all over the place. Now, when did this movement come to New York City? Well, that took longer. These anti-drinking laws tended to be
0: a country versus city battle, Because in many cases, those in the countryside who were in the majority, say in the 1870s and 80s, well, they were growing increasingly anxious about the, quote, problems of the city especially as the cities were growing in strength and number and becoming the majority by the end of the century. And nowhere was this better illustrated than in New York City, where by the the end of the 19th century, as we've discussed in many, many shows, the city had literally seen millions of immigrants arriving from all over the world. And many of them were coming from places with deeply ingrained drinking cultures like Ireland,
1: Germany, Italy, most of the major beer manufacturers, for instance, would be German, would be German brewers. That's right. I mean, all the big ones,
0: mm. Miller, Anheuser-Busch, uh, Pabst, Schlitz, Schlitz. <laughs> Schlitz, we both say, <laughs> Schlitz. These were all German-American families who set up these breweries that dominated the beer market.
1: And as we talked about in our Little Italy show, Lower East Side show, uh, many of our other immigrant shows... These taverns are more than just places to drink. They have community purpose. Sometimes they act like banks Mm -hmm. for for people. Um, They're places to gather and like share your culture. They really become community centers.
0: Well, also because the living conditions were so squalid, so terrible in so many of these tenements that they became kind of an extension of the living room. But at the same time, to other Americans, these cultures were foreign and strange, and they seemed un-American. Many second- and third-generation Americans were linking the drinking that went on in these immigrant quarters with the other woes that they suffered, you know, like the horrible housing Mm -hmm. conditions, uh, crime, other vices, because it did seem like most of the crime that took place in the city— was focused around saloons in places, you know, in Five Points
1: and other neighborhoods. I mean, brothels, gambling dens, always tended to flock near saloons. Down in Five Points, up the Bowery, over in the Tenderloin. These
0: were the places that you read about in the newspaper where crime seemed to run rampant. Mm-hmm. And so by the end of the 19th century, when there are big reform movements coming through uh New York and other cities around the country, where there are very noble attempts, often successful, to clean up housing and schooling and workplace conditions. These were the great reforms of the turn of the century. There was also a push to reform the alcohol consumption Of Many of these communities and and these communities were targeted specifically because of their drinking cultures. And by the turn of the century, there was a new major force in the temperance movement called the anti saloon league, which had been formed in the 1890s in Oberlin, Ohio. They were using a new tactic called political pressure. (laughs) <laughs> to, get, yeah. to get these laws pushed through, these, these anti-saloon laws pushed through state houses with the idea that if you could win at the state and local levels, then you could finally push through a prohibition on alcohol at
1: the national level. What's interesting is that it's the anti-saloon league, meaning mm-hmm. that they're actually taking aim not simply at the alcohol, but these places where people are gathering.
0: They weren't, they weren't targeting, you know, the, the Yale Club in Midtown. They weren't ta- oh, no. targeting, you know, the Rockefellers with their vast wine cellar. They, they were
1: targeting immigrant bars. So, Tom, walk me through the steps here of how we get an 18th Amendment mm. out of all of this.
0: They really only needed for this to be passed in Congress and then to be ratified by 36 of the 48 states in order for the
1: amendment to pass.
0: So New York didn't necessarily need to pass it.
1: But I can't imagine that flew in New York, right? I mean, people weren't into that, were they? Well,
0: you wouldn't think so. But weirdly, the pro-temperance support in New York had started to build. And some of it came from surprising quarters. For example... Broadway. You know, there were some Broadway producers and theater people, including George M. Cohen, who were pro-prohibition. And same with movie studios that were in New York. Why? Well, be- because they thought that people would be saving all kinds of cash, and they'd be looking for other ways to have a good time. Well, so they could have more money to
1: go see Texas Guinan movies, for <laughs> That's instance. right.
0: That's right. They'd be spending less in a... In a bar, and so they'd have more change in their pockets. And it wasn't just them, it was also manufacturers, you know, like Henry Ford, Andrew Carnegie. The manufacturers thought that there'd be more spending for consumer goods and industrialists and factory owners. you thought that well, this is great because their workers will be less
1: likely to be inebriated. Well, that's a compelling argument, but then what is the factor that finally pushes this over the top? What, even though support was
0: building, it really took something bigger to build enough popular support to really get this through Congress, and that really didn't happen until the U.S. entered World War One. Suddenly, nobody wanted to appear too foreign, and certainly nobody wanted to appear pro-German. So, you know, drinking in saloons and beer halls and drinking beer, they all seemed very suddenly anti-American. And so in December of 1917, Congress drafted the 18th Amendment, which banned the manufacture, sale, and transportation of alcoholic beverages in the United States and its possessions. And now it was up to the states to ratify, or at least three-quarters of them. And and enough states did with Nebraska on January 16th, 1919— that prohibition became law and was set to take effect one year later, on January 16th, 1920. But of course, you know, New Yorkers, New York City residents were by and large not very happy about this. And you know, there was still a lot of ambiguity about what Mm -hmm. the 18th Amendment even meant. There weren't strict definitions or even explanations as to how it would be enforced. And it's funny, looking back, you know, in, in newspaper clippings from January of 1920, the days leading up to the enactment of Prohibition, you, you see all these stories about, you know, final farewells. Oh, and yeah. And people celebrating with their last wet dinners. Here's one, um, in an article from the New York Times on January 15th, 1920, where Senator Walter Edge of New Jersey was holding a Goodbye to Liberty dinner at the Hotel Biltmore, Last night, and they were all basically raising their drinks
1: and mourning the death of liberty in New York. Well, so meanwhile, the we've left Texas guy in here out in Los Angeles, and I I too looked through newspapers in Los Angeles for this particular day to look up possible parties that she might have gone to. Mm. I found a lot of interesting mournful ceremonies that took place on that particular day. One bard dressed up in black and blue crepe, and a dummy of John Barleycorn was buried in a trash can. Another a cabaret, dancing girls served as pallbearers as they they took a coffin of booze out to bury it. I mean, it's all very morbid. So I'm not really sure. I bet they dug up that booze later. (laughs) I'm sure they did. Texas is in a really interesting place in 1919 because she's a big star. She has just received the right to vote. Which is sort of carried along in alongside Prohibition. But of course, now she can't have a cocktail. So, fast forward to 1922, and she's now out on the road. Two years into Prohibition. Two years into Prohibition now, right? So, she's out on the road. She decides that she wants to return to New York City. Like, I don't think that her film career was doing all that well by this time. She had some intentions of going back onto the stage. So New York City in 1922, a very exciting place to be. We described some of the amazing features of New York City in the early 1920s in our last show. So this is what was greeting her. It was a very different New York than the one she knew back over 15 years ago. She's 38 years old. She's unmarried. She's not about to settle down with anyone at this time. And the most amazing thing to me is her hair is dyed shock blonde, totally white, which was back then kind of unheard of, really, for, for women, especially women of her age, 38 years old. And of course, she would settle back into the village and hang out with all of her village friends. And her new home was on West 8th Street.
0: Wow, she seems really like a bohemian or a bohemian
1: uh,
0: (laughs) and probably, you know, fit right in with the new sort
1: of flappers and the women about town. Yeah, there's a there's a it's an interesting time to be a woman in New York City. The fashions were changing short skirts and short haircuts. More women were in the workplace making money than spending that money at such salons that were owned by, say, Elizabeth Arden and Helena Rubinstein. They may have been reading Dorothy Parker in the newspaper, listening to Bessie Smith records on their Victrola. You had women playing sports, they were flying airplanes, they were smoking in public. This was just an era of the new independent woman. And it just seems like Texas Garden is very perfectly positioned so it sounds like Texas is in the right place. So yes. what, what was she doing? Was she working? Was she auditioning? So was she, just- she, she wasn't in the movies okay. anymore. She was dabbling in vaudeville. She, had, uh, she would do some shows here or there, but she didn't have a, a steady gig. But she had a lot of time to mingle with a lot of her famous friends. A lot of her Hollywood friends were out here in New York, of course. One particular night, uh, she popped to a nightclub Called the Cafe de Beaux-Arts, which was on 80 West 40th Street. Now that is the southwest corner of Bryant Park. This is a this is a this is a nightclub where she could get a drink. This is a nightclub where you could get a drink. Okay, As a two, po- years. Yes, uh-huh, two years into prohibition. Two years into prohibition. She was about around 1:30 in the morning. The party was a little boring. So about 1:30 in the morning, Tex- Texas was asked to come up on the stage and sing. She did more than sing. She kind of took over the whole venue with her kind of force of personality. She was apparently such a successful hostess. She sort of like took on this role without really being asked to. Hmm. She seems like she has that kind of a personality. That the party here actually raged until 5.30 in the morning. So naturally, the the owner of the Café de Beaux-Arts invited Texas to work there full time and to be a hostess. Well, now,
0: where I come from, a hostess is somebody who asks you how many are in your party and, and shows <laughs> yeah. you to
1: your table. Is that what she was doing? No. Well, where I, where I come from, a hostess is a cupcake. <laughs> <laughs> but what she was doing, it, it's, a, it's a very interesting role that maybe only existed really in this form in the 1920s and 1930s, where you're really an MC of the whole evening. There's like a roster of entertainment, and you're kind of holding the whole thing together. But you're also in with the crowd. You're walking around. You're talking to people. You have to be playful and witty. And she had this infectious charm about her. You know, she had really honed it as a movie star. And the, the one thing that these movies did not reflect was the fact that she was a very humorous woman. She, had a, she was a cracking comedian. And so she got to use these skills while also having this kind of like famous allure about her.
0: So I can see her then just sort of drifting about the nightclub and dropping in on tables and making yeah. everybody feel sort of important and part of the the evening's festivities and staying longer and drinking more. Yes,
1: and I imagine she would actually help facilitate uh, your liquor orders. You know, if you she would like suss out who really was there to drink and everything. And so she eventually got the room to spend more money, which is really like of great value for a club owner. Well, she was so successful that she was actually hired away to be a hostess at the King Cole Room at the Hotel Knickerbocker. She was poached. She was poached for the King Cole Room. That's at 152 West 42nd Street. The The Knickerbocker Hotel is still there. It's right off Times Square. Now, they called it the King Cole Room because it had a lavish mural of old King Cole, which had been painted by Maxfield Parish. Now, this nightclub closed a few years later, and that mural was moved over to the St. Regis in 1935, and it's there to this day. And you can still go to the St. Regis Hotel today
0: and have a drink in the
1: King Cole Room, but... Mm-hmm. but-
0: Texas's King Cole room at the Hotel Knickerbocker.
1: Yes, on Forty Second Street. Right. So, what was it like inside? Was it was it really highbrow? Yeah, very highbrow. Uh, many many famous people. Uh, let me just tell you one anecdote that I think really kind of summarizes the whole thing. One of the most famous evenings here involving Texas was the night that Rudolph Valentino showed up with his brand new bride, Natasha Rambova. Now, we've talked about both of these people, these famous silver screen idols. We have an entire Rudolph Valentino episode. If you want to really hear about how eccentric Natasha Rambova is, check that show out. So they're they're there, and they're obviously the center of attention. There's a lot of famous people in this place, but, but Rudolph is like the biggest star in the world. Unfortunately, though, there was another peculiar guest there. She was there as a friend of a friend of someone that Texas knew. This peculiar guest was a woman with spiked red hair, an insanely low-cut dress, shockingly so, even for Texas. And she was wrapped, enveloped in dozens of pearls. Hmm. So this is a very strange woman. And she introduced herself to Texas as the Countess of Itch. So, uh, so Tex. So, I have an ointment so, for that. <laughs> well, Texas provoked that itch actually mm. by setting her next to Valentino and Rambova. What she didn't realize is this was actually Rudolph Valentino's ex wife, Jean Acker, in a disguise. She wasn't really the Countess of Itch after all. No, she was She was Rudolph's ex wife. And so while Valentino and Rumbova were on the dance floor, the Countess of Itch, she became, she got really agitated and began throwing plates onto the dance floor, and so Texas had the busboys chase after the plates so that the dancers wouldn't trip and fall. So it was this like mad scene of like calamity and with some glamour mixed into it. So Tex's strategy was this. She actually went up to Valentino, and the two kind of laughed about it, and then asked if he would dance with his ex-wife, with Gene Acker, with the Countess of Itch, knowing, of course, that Gene Acker couldn't dance. I mean, Rudolph Valentino is one of the greatest dancers of this period, right? Mm-hmm. So, so she goes up, and I think that they dance a little bit, and then, she, and then she's kind of humiliated and runs out of the nightclub. The next day, the gossip colonists had a field day, but she had done such a good job here at the Hotel Knickerbocker in incidents such as these, mm. handling people who were millionaires, famous folk, that she then got hired away from the Knickerbocker, grabbing the attention of another nightclub owner, which this takes her into a more interesting world, shall we say. His name was Larry Faye. And we'll get to Texas, Larry Fay, and hey, a mobster or two, after this. This episode is brought to you by Clarkson Potter and 10 Speed Press, publishers of Alexander Hamilton, an impeccably researched graphic biography of the man who inspired the hit Broadway musical, and Deal or Duel, a revolutionary card game that pitched your survival instincts and spending savvy against the founding fathers and mothers perfect for history lovers, Deal or Duel and Alexander Hamilton are available wherever books are sold. Now, I know that we are in the middle of a podcast here, but Tom and I, before we recorded, um, have actually been in the middle of a game of Deal or Duel.
0: Yes, we actually had to stop the game. To um, start recording the show about Texas Guinan.
1: (laughs) Our cards are downstairs arrayed and our money and everything just waiting uh, for us to continue the game.
0: And we stopped at a
1: really tense spot. We've been challenging each other to, to duels left and right. Yeah, you actually duel against other players. In fact, that's how you kind of win. You either accumulate the most money or you eliminate your competitors.
0: One by one, you take out the other team members. Like, who's on your team?
1: Yeah, so that's the cool part. Your your team is comprised of revolutionary favorites, <laughs> I would say. My team... A-listers. Uh, it's, it's, of course, it's Thomas Paine, Gouverneur Morris, Phyllis Wheatley, Patrick Henry... And all of these revolutionary
0: characters are dueling it out to see who can break the bank or be the last man
1: standing. All the cards have like little historical moments on it. Here's one card about Benjamin Franklin and his experiment with the kite. Another one on yellow fever epidemic. So you're actually tying in a lot of very specific moments about American history into this game. Deal or Duel, The Game, and Alexander Hamilton, The Graphic Biography, are available wherever books are sold. But we've got to go back to Prohibition, back to the story of Texas Guinan. So we've left our marvelous movie star-turned-hostess, Texas Guinan. We've left her in the hands of a new character named Larry Fay.
0: Yes, Mr. Fay was a rum runner. He was a smuggler of booze into the city. He made a fortune by importing alcohol into New York from Canada.
1: It sounds like Texas is going from like the front of the club, so to speak, to the back rooms shenanigans to see how these places are really being operated. Judging from Texas's shenanigans, it seems like booze is still being served fairly regularly. How is Prohibition even enforced during this period? The poorly. Poor- <laughs> but the problem here was
0: that lawmakers, even you know the ones who were so excited about pushing through pro- Prohibition, were not equally excited about funding the enforcement of Prohibition. So... You know, through this Volstead Act, they established this prohibition unit or or, or bureau that only had 1,500 agents to crack down on offenders in the entire country. And in New York City, there were only 129 agents. And the best part um, for those who were anti-prohibitionists was that these were, for the most part political appointees these were not uh political bosses you know and heavyweights could just reward their supporters with these jobs why
1: would this job be a reward
0: well can you imagine the kickbacks you could you could choose which nightclubs and speakeasies to raid and which ones to leave alone. So bar owners knew that they simply had to pay off the local prohibition enforcement agent. Some agents were were raiding illegal bars and speakeasies, collecting the, the the booze in the joint, and then taking it off and selling it to their competitors. Some agents were even taking the booze and selling it back to the bar that they were raiding it from. It was so bad that some agents were actually taking the booze and
1: setting up their own speakeasies. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a, just a chaotic mess, but uh, no one really knew how to function in these early years of prohibition. Did the police help at all?
0: Well, the, the NYPD initially didn't want anything to do with cracking down on these illegal bars. They already had enough work on their
1: hands. But even in the early years of prohibition, even in the years when Texas Guinan was just getting her start in these nightclubs, it sounds like the police were actually cracking down by this time. So what changed? Well, basically, the, the police were
0: forced to, to do their job in 1921 when Albany passed a law called the Mulling Gage Law, and that forced the police department to actually assist the Prohibition League. And they did at first, and that resulted in thousands of arrests for illegally selling alcohol, but it also, as predicted, became this enormous waste of time and hugely unpopular with the police department because it filled their courtrooms, the judges hated it. And and quickly, police officers got into the same trouble as the prohibition agents by taking kickbacks from bar owners and from those making and transporting
1: the booze in the first place. So there was just too much money at stake. So Larry Fay, who you introduced us to earlier, was a rum runner. Now, are these the kinds of people who were bringing in the illegal booze into all of these speakeasies? What was the distribution process?
0: Right, because the distribution and the production didn't disappear, obviously. It just went underground, Mm -hmm. and it was handled by by gangs, by organized crime, by people who were breaking the law, obviously. Made possible by the fact that there was basically a police vacuum, right? There, There was a huge amount of money that was being paid Paid to the police department and to prohibition <laughs> units to make these powerful players um, on the organized crime side basically untouchable.
1: So where is this booze like actually? being made? Where is it coming from? That's fueling all of these many thousands of speakeasies and nightclubs in New York City.
0: Well, there were, you know, there were various sources. So there were, first of all, federal stockpiles of alcohol that were being locked up and kept for medicinal purposes. However, these could be stolen, looted, or sold off to fake drug companies, which could then wind up in a speakeasy. But more commonly, I think there were millions of gallons of booze that were being imported from other countries, um, just taken across the border from Canada or or sailed in from the Bahamas. There were ships that were filled with crates of alcohol, right? And they'd station themselves three miles out uh, from the coast, all along the eastern seaboard, out into international waters, and they were just filled with crates of booze. And as, as darkness fell every night, there would be speedboats that would hurry the booze in the darkest hours of the night back to shore. Once they arrived back in the ports, they'd be disguised. These shipments would often be disguised, of course, and labeled as something totally innocuous, and then loaded into trucks and carted off to distribution centers. And if the truck got pulled over along the way, the, the driver could just plead ignorance. He thought that he had, you know, a huge load of cabbage.
1: And these wouldn't be at faraway warehouses either. As we mentioned in our Little Italy show, there were buildings there that just had huge caches of alcohol that was then distributed locally to the speakeasies in the neighborhood.
0: And it wasn't just speakeasies because you could then buy as a consumer, Greg, if you needed a drink, you could walk in any neighborhood in New York into... Stores that look like candy stores or cigar shops. Um, And if you knew the right code word, you would just wind up buying a bottle of whiskey or wine or rum or whatever. You just had to know what to ask for. Um, There were even delivery services. So, you know, especially as prohibition rolled along. And these businesses became more emboldened. You could just call a phone number. People would leave flyers uh, underneath uh, underneath your door advertising the prices that week for their booze, and you could just call and have it delivered to your apartment.
1: <laughs> well, a, mo- a modern liquor delivery service—that sounds very twenty-first century. Yes, it was pre-app. <laughs>
0: And then obviously you could just go out and be served a drink in restaurants that were still serving, you know, maybe though in teacups or somehow disguising it or in speakeasies, which were illegal bars, often hidden nightclubs and cabarets, which is, you know, these were establishments that served drinks, but also provided a floor show or some kind of theatrical experience. And that's where people like Texas Guinan came in, in the process. Right. And this brings us back to my statement that she was really queen of the nightclubs, Mm -hmm. because technically speaking, I believe that a speakeasy is more the Bar, you know, I don't believe that there were
1: floor shows and such. And she certainly had floor <laughs> shows. She had yes. people
0: throwing plates.
1: <laughs> but the like, speakeasy could just be like a parlor in an, an apartment, whereas a nightclub was obviously a bigger production here. But the thing that's just astonishing to me is that a lot of this was like literally next door to like police headquarters. How did an industry this size pretty much get away with everything?
0: Well, again, there was a police vacuum here, right, which was created by two facts. First, most of the police disagreed with the law in the first place. And and secondly, the criminals who had developed this underworld of distribution and production had an unbelievably large amount of money at their disposal to pay off the enforcement agents. And they did freely. And don't forget that in these nightclubs and speakeasies, you were not paying pre-prohibition prices. You were (laughs) paying anywhere from two times what you paid before to seven or eight, ten times for a drink what you would have paid uh, before 1920.
1: Jacked up premium prices. Now, in our last show on Jimmy Walker, mm-hmm. we talked about the uh, fact that he was quite fond of the speakeasy. He was quite fond of his drink. And even when he was in Albany as a state senator, before he was mayor, he would do this. Isn't that kind of a little risky to be doing as a politician?
0: He made no secret of the fact that he was against prohibition and he he was a wet politician. They, they called themselves the wets versus mm-hmm. the dries. And in fact, in 1923, state senator Jimmy Walker proposed a repealing of those Mullen gauge laws that I mentioned before, that that forced the police to mm-hmm. enforce a prohibition. That was passed at the state level and signed into law. The repeal was signed by Governor Al Smith. This led to a flourishing of speakeasies because it basically signaled. You know, a a turning point in prohibition that from that point on, the city's police force, thousands of officers were not making the enforcement of
1: prohibition a priority. Even still, there were some occasional police raids, especially as we get a few years into Prohibition.
0: Yes, and also in 1925, the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, which is always a, a powerful position, <laughs> a man named Emery Buckner, he announced that he was sick and tired of the city and police forces inaction on enforcing Prohibition. And he announced that he was going to take action himself by using Padlocks, and instead of filling up courtrooms, you know, with these alcohol-related cases, the judge, the no judge was excited to hear. His agents would shut the offending speakeasies and nightclubs down themselves by raiding them. If they saw alcohol being being served, they would get everybody out of there. And they would padlock the place. And they would close it with a padlock, lock it up for a year. A year during which nobody else could rent out the space. So the idea here was that, okay, we're going to stop criminalizing everybody who's drinking because that leads to, you know, nothing. And instead, we're going to go after the pocketbook of landlords and also club owners. And we're just going to say, okay, you're going to lose a lot of money because you're going to be shut down nightclub owner and landlord, you won't be able to rent this place out for another year.
1: Well, the padlock would become the symbol of law enforcement, essentially, of prohibition enforcement. And as you read stories then from the
0: middle years of prohibition in, say, here's a piece um, in the Times on October 21st, 1925, headline, Padlock Confronts 30 Leading Resorts. So, the padlock truly became the symbol of prohibition uh, uh, enforcement and became something of tourist attractions around town. Tourists mm-hmm. would
1: th- take photos of oh, themselves right. in front of padlocked clubs. So this is the whole scene that is greeting Texas Guinan <laughs> when she begins working with Larry Faye.
0: Yes, Larry Faye, who had made so much money from importing and distributing Alcohol. That in 1924 he opened his own nightclub called the El Fay at 107 West 45th Street, and that would, you know, be padlocked and reopen um, as Del Fay and and later Fay's Follies. So Buckner's padlock laws didn't really have their intended consequence of shutting everything down because there was so much money here that people like Larry Fay, who at this point was employing Texas Guinan as a Mm -hmm. mistress of ceremonies, as an emcee, he would just, okay, he got padlocked. Well, that sort of built notoriety around his shows and they would just
1: spring up down the block. And she was key to his establishments because she was famous, she was a famous person, right. making these appearances. So he wasn't just uh, a man who owned nightclubs. Here he had this w- woman overseeing the whole process, and everything was just even more alluring. The more that they would close down,
0: well, they would get their names in the paper. I mean, this article that I'm alluded to here from October 21st of 1925 is about the padlocking of the Alfed. And it, it mentions it by name, and actually it lists out the 30 nightclubs that were shut down, and this is in The time, So that was, sure, maybe they were, you know, shut down for a year, but they got a lot of publicity. And let's not forget the fact that built excitement. People at this point were going to these nightclubs and to these speakeasies because they were exciting. They, they knew that sort of like the wave of history was on their side, at mm-hmm. least in New York, mm-hmm. and that... that they were breaking these very unpopular laws together. So it was exciting,
1: you know, to be part of this moment. Well, in 1926, Texas, who now had a lot more cachet, and she had a lot more cash. <laughs> hey. hey. Um, but she ended up opening her own club called the 300 Club uh, at 151 West 54th Street, a tiny little space where the magic happened. Uh, to quote this biography of Texas Garnet by Louis Berliner called the Texas Garnet Queen of Nightclubs, quote... Texas had decorated the club to match the mood of her home, mixing comfort and the exotic, creating a dark, soft, intimate place for friends and strangers to meet and mingle. Walls and ceiling were covered with pleated cloth, and folds dripped down from the ceiling to create a tent effect, not unlike the canopy over her own bed at home. that...
0: I mean, that almost sounds uncomfortable.
1: <laughs> well, d- during like like a summer evening uh, <laughs> with no air conditioning. Um, still, every... Yeah, you
0: never think about that
1: aspect you never of knew, prohibition. No. Well, everyone came to her club. It was packed every single night. And again, there's something about her mystique and about how she was able to control a crowd that was very visceral. She, you know, you're crammed into a little room, so she entered your personal space. She would go up to each customer, uh, draw out their urges, make them, you know, convince them to drink a little bit more, spend a little bit more money while keeping the whole thing under control, like monitoring the Chorus girls, the dancing girls to make sure that like everyone's, you know, comfortable mixing all different classes of people Mm -hmm. in her nightclubs. You know, on these crowded nights, you would often hear her shouting many of her famous phrases such as hello, sucker. Hello, suck it. That was her line. That's her line, not Mae West's line. Um, Also, when she would have a a singer or dancer on the stage, and they would leave, she was also known for saying, give the little girl a great big hand. One night, a a rich man began passing out money to all the chorus girls. Texas sidled up to him and asked him what profession he said, and he said he was a, a dairy, he worked in dairy produce. And so her response became another famous line, calling her rich clients the butter and egg men
0: the butter and egg men <laughs> she referred to all of her richest patrons as
1: butter and egg men it was like oh they're the ones that can spend the most money that we can uh, we can roll them for the most money i mean it's cheesy but it works <laughs> well the 300 she was cl- a cultured woman <laughs> oh, God, we could just keep going here with the with the dairy puns
0: but we're lactose intolerant so we'll stop <laughs>
1: Well, the 300 club was repeatedly shut down. And finally, in, on Fe- in February of 1927, she was even jailed and held in a cell for up to nine hours. What I think is amazing. Okay, she- I mean, you said that
0: like that's a long time, but really, it's not for. She was held for nine hours and then she was released. Yeah, then she was released. I mean, so, this you know- is the thing about prohibition it was like not enforced, you know? No, she, she-, she was yeah. clearly the mastermind behind this whole thing. And then she was held in a cell for nine hours. When
1: she would have to go to court, Tom, and she would frequently have to go to court, she would always claim that there was no liquor sold in her establishment. And in fact, she was the only employee anyway. (laughs) So there was no liquor and she was the only employee. Despite the fact that she was obviously employing sometimes dozens of people, you know, she always was let off. She would reopen the club somewhere else under different names. Another one was Club on Team, which was at 205 West 50. 4th Street, which is actually a bar today. It's a champagne bar called Flute. Yes. Um, but she opened and closed and had so many places padlocked, Tom, that on July 5th, 1927, you, you know, remember, she's an actress and, and singer and dancer and personality. Mm-hmm. She literally opened a zigfield style show called The Padlocks of 1927. This is a show... <laughs> On Broadway? Yes. <laughs> um, she was paid $5,000 a week. The padlocks of 1927 would open at the Schubert Theater. Oh, classy joint. How, did, how was it received? Let me just read a little bit of the review from the New York Times, because I feel like it just says it all. Quote, Considered simply as an entertainment presented on a stage for the delectation of an audience on the other side of the footlights, padlocks of 1927, which finally arrived at the Schubert Theater last night, is a dull, acrid, undistinguished stencil of the reviews which have preceded it for all these many years. Texas Guinan, the local nightclub abbess, hailed about half of the audience by their first names as they entered the theater last night. She introduced herself to the other half and had them calling her by her first name before the show was 10 minutes old. And by intermission, she had everyone throwing confetti. After intermission, Miss Guinan further established the informality of the occasion by introducing various persons in the audience, among them a Philadelphia censor who came up on stage and told a joke... (laughs) (laughs) A local judge and her own mother and father.
0: (laughs) That sounds like the best night at the theater ever. I mean, clearly this reviewer needed a drink.
1: (laughs) That, ladies and gentlemen, is the padlocks of 1927, hopefully to be revived in the current Broadway season, I hope.
0: Well, Texas had another very famous uh, nightclub called the Salon Royale, which was located at 310 West 58th Street. If you go there today, it's a hotel called the Six Columbus Hotel. Um, at the time, it was called the Acropolis Hotel. And you'll notice that these nightclubs were always located inside hotels mm-hmm. and that's because under mayor jimmy walker who started in 1926 he passed uh, some cabaret laws as a way to regulate nightlife in the city even to know what was going on it was also a way for his administration to say to the dry movement look we're doing something mm-hmm. you know like at least we're regulating this we know where the we know where the night spots are well most night spots had to close at 3 o'clock in the morning, most nightclubs and cabarets. Mm-hmm. However, if you were located inside a hotel, you could stay open all night, uh, just as long as you didn't take any new customers after that time. So that's why we always see, you know, like here's here's an advertisement, um, which I'm sure you'll put on the blog uh, for the Salon Royale, Quote, uh, Texas Guinan and her gang of 20 of the most beautiful girls in the world appear nightly after theater at the Salon Royale, 310 West 58th Street, where society, stage, and screen stars gather nightly. And then in a big box in the middle of the ad, it says, Remember, there is no 3 a.m. closing at Salon Royale. <laughs>
1: So oh, right. I forgot it's in the Columbus Circle area, which was oh, also yeah. kind of a hot spot during this period. There are so many speakeasies all over the place, and they're obviously not, you know, elaborately marked. How would you even know where to go? Well, you could read about
0: it in a new magazine that launched in 1925 called The New Yorker, which really struggled at first, but then caught on after it just thrust itself into covering the city after dark mm-hmm. and its goings on about town, which is still at the front of the the, the issue uh, today. And there was a nightlife column that was initially started by a man named Charles Baskerville, which was called When Nights Are Bold. Uh, he wrote under the pen name Top Hat. His his column would be passed on to a woman named Lois Long, and she wrote under the pen name Lipstick. <laughs> so, yes, she went about town and she just dropped in the names of all of these speakeasies and nightclubs and cabarets. And here's what she wrote about the nightclub scene of the time. Lots and lots of them have at least one grand entertainment factor. For instance, Clayton, Jackson, and Durante prance on and off the floor of the parody club at short intervals from 10.30 on. They're completely cuckoo. They interrupt each other, they throw hats at the orchestra, and they provide an atmosphere of disarming madness. Texas Guinan, who is now carousing at the Salon Royale, has added to her show a girl who does a hooch dance with the aid of a real boa constrictor, (laughs) a good eight feet long. Since Texas's place is legitimately open until 7 a.m. or later, and therefore the last stop on the nightclub whirl, you can imagine the effect of this for late arrivals who are a little... The worse for wear. <laughs> so imagine, yes, people would descend upon Texas's Salon Royale at the end of a long night,
1: already pretty tipsy, and then see a woman with an eight-foot bow. Wow. I mean, give that little girl a big hand. She deserved it. <laughs> so all of this excitement and gaiety that's going on and is super exciting and, and colorful and interesting is being protected by an undercurrent of organized crime.
0: Yes, back to how this was even possible, to the system of acquiring and storing and distributing alcohol. That, in New York, those details had been worked out by a mastermind named Arnold Rothstein. And Rothstein, here in New York, managed to work with other organized crime figures to control the city's alcohol supply. Men like Lucky Luciano and Oni Madden and others Rothstein had also been a silent partner in Larry Fay's L Fay Club. And it was on November 4th, 1928, while Rothstein was attending a business meeting at the Park Central Hotel in Midtown that he was gunned down. And he died from those wounds two days later on November 6, 1928.
1: Rothstein died at the Polyclinic Hospital. It was at this very hospital two years earlier that Rudolph Valentino had passed away. So we mentioned this incident, this assassination, on our last show on Mayor Jimmy Walker. We left the mayor in a very good place, about to launch into a reelection campaign. In
0: 1929, which seemed like it should be another great and profitable year for Texas Guinan, another great year for Mayor Jimmy Walker, and another... Flourishing year for the city of New York.
1: All of these characters will carry over with us into our next episode, our third part and conclusion of our Roaring 20 series.
0: Join us on the blog, BoweryBoysHistory.com, for plenty of photos and clips and more excitement surrounding Texas Guinan speakeasies and New York during Prohibition.
1: You can also check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and we want to give a special thank you, thank you, and shout out to those of you who support us on patreon.com, where we will have extra audio and extra little features for those who sponsor us there. Finally, check out the Battery Boys spinoff podcast, The First, where I'm also doing a three-parter on the inventions and in life of Benjamin Franklin. Parts one and two are already out, and part three, the final part, as Ben enters the Revolutionary War period, that'll be coming out next week.
0: You're just a man of miniseries, Greg. <laughs>
1: Many many mini series. <laughs> many many series. Well, I think we've earned ourselves a cocktail, Tom. I'd say a Texas-size cocktail, <laughs> Greg. On that note, thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon.